This is Chapter 101 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we give a classic movie monster designer her long-deserved due. We take a deeper look at America's longest war, and then we learn all about Dem Bones. You've probably never heard of Millicent Patrick, but odds are you're familiar with the movie monster she designed for Universal Studios. I'm talking about the creature from the Black Lagoon. The reason Millicent isn't a household name is because her male boss at the time took credit for her work. Filmmaker and self-professed nerd Mallory O'Mara sets the record straight in her book The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Mallory about the woman who's inspired her since she was a child. This is a fascinating real-life detective story of a woman who I think is honestly way past getting her due. Tell me what first drew you to Millicent Patrick and her role in Hollywood history. So I first found out about Millicent Patrick when I was a teenager, and I had just finished watching Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I wanted to find out more about how it was made, and I wanted to really nerd out about the monster suit, and I looked online, and I found a picture of a woman working on the creature suit. And I had never, ever seen a woman working behind the scenes on a monster movie before. And the caption of the photo said, Millicent Patrick, illustrator and designer, and it was like being struck by lightning. Just seeing her working on that suit showed me for the first time that I had a place in that world. And from that moment, she became my hero. So it's been a really long time. What finally got you to write this book? It, yeah, it was quite a long time between that first moment and when I decided to write. I saw her when I was a teenager. And then a few years later, I ended up becoming a horror filmmaker myself and she was still a talisman to me. You know, she always reminded me that I belonged in that industry. So I got a tattoo of her to sort of commemorate that and make it, you know, real. And, you know, having her on my arm is so comforting to me. And uh, after I got the tattoo, I was at a uh, party in New York City and I was talking to a literary agent that I knew. And up until that point, You know, I had never thought about finding more out about her. She was just sort of this big question mark. No one really knew what she did after Creature. And I was talking to him and I said, yeah, she designed Creature from the Black Lagoon, but nobody knows what else she did, where she came from, if she's even alive. And he said, wow, that would make a great book. And I laughed and he said, no, that would make a great book. You should do this. And I thought, yeah, why not? Why why can't I find out what happened to her? I think the rest, as they say, is history. Yes. (laughs) It's pretty safe to say that Creature is your favorite movie monster. Why is that? I love Creature because I feel like he really embodies so much humanity. And when you watch Creature from the Black Lagoon, he's not the bad guy. He is not the villain. The one of the other one of the human members of the scientific party is. And part of that is Millicent's amazing design, because when you look at him, you feel for him, you feel bad for him. And watching him, you know, in that famous scene where he's swimming underneath Julie Adams, you feel for him. And you when I saw it the first time when I was a teenager, I thought, oh, my God. That's how I feel when I'm in the halls and and in my high school. You know, you really, you know, you want to be his friend. It's really interesting because, you know, you found that photo of Millicent. But between the time that photo was taken and this day and age, her contribution was pretty much eliminated from history, except as you point out, like some really, really deep monster nerds knew about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her departure from Hollywood and basically this 
the crappy way in which her reputation was taken from her. So what happened was when Millicent was working and she's working in the Universal Monster Shop in the 50s. And when Universal decided to start promoting Creature from the Black Lagoon, they thought, well, you know, we have this woman who designed the creature. She's very beautiful. She's very captivating. She's well-spoken. Why don't we send her out on tour? And it'll be the beauty who created the beast. And her boss at the monster shop and makeup shop, a man named Bud Westmore, was not happy about that. He did not want people to know that he didn't design the creature. So he said, no, you can't do that. So they decided to rebrand the tour as uh, the beauty who lives with the beast. So she got sort of shunted from a creator role to a this like maternal caretaker role. And she still agreed to do the tour. And he said, okay, well, one more thing. You have to lie and tell people that I designed it. You can't tell people that you this is your work. So while she was out on tour, you know, telling people that Bud Westmore made it, he still was so jealous of all the attention she was receiving as she was promoting the movie. And he fired her and she came back from the tour, had no job, never worked behind the scenes again. And he just went on to claim credit for the creature. So and on the films and the credit on screen in Creature from the Black Lagoon, it just says makeup Bud Westmore. So, and there was no internet back then to check these things, and there was no detailed credits. You know, other people who worked on the creature didn't get credit either. So, for decades, unless you were really hardcore into monster stuff, you just assumed Bud Westmore did it, and she was erased. I love how nicely you say that because you don't say it so nicely in the book. <laughs> I do not. I have a lot of opi- a lot of opinions about it. You know what? I really do want to ask you though. Um, I, I think one of the more eye-opening things is maybe sort of what you learned, too, in reading about her experience, in that you were really angry for her but that for not fighting back, but then realized something a little bit deeper than that, didn't you? Yeah. So writing this book, I think, made me a better person because uh, when I you know, was writing it and writing about this part of her life and I was so angry at her for not, you know, throwing Bud Westmore into a volcano and really demanding justice for herself, I realized that you know, by, by this point in time, she had been working in Hollywood for almost 20 years. Like, when did she get to take a break? You know, we respond to these situations now in this era of Me Too. Like, well, why didn't she fight back? Why didn't she say anything? Why didn't she do this? And you're putting all of the uh, the pressure on the victim in the situation instead of getting mad at the person who did, you know, started the whole thing in the first place. And I realized that I was doing that to her. And I had done it to myself before. You know, I work in the same industry that she did. And there's so many situations where I thought I couldn't do anything because I didn't say anything or I didn't, I didn't, you know, wasn't quick enough with, uh, you know, telling somebody what happened. And again, I really think it made me a better person and, you know, sort of pulled a lot of internalized sexism out of me that I didn't realize was there. Would you say that her work is still influential today? Oh, absolutely. We, we wouldn't have Shape of Water without Millicent Patrick's work. Guillermo del Toro has said so himself. You know, this is a monster movie that won Best Picture and Best Director a couple of years ago. And that the creature, the asset in Shape of Water is absolutely directly inspired by the creature from the Black Lagoon. And what would you say her legacy is? Well, besides all of the amazing art that she worked on and the influence it's had, I really think that her legacy is this. We have this idea right now that we're, you know, people are trying to get more women in every industry and we're trying to hire more women, but people don't realize that we've always been here. 
we have always, always been here. Women have always wanted to make movies and make art and make monsters and draw. And Millicent Patrick proves that, you know, she was doing this in the 1950s. So that's what I think her legacy is, is that women have always belonged in this industry. I think that's a great takeaway. I think this book belongs on the shelf next to Hidden Figures and all those other books that have been coming out about women that have been ignored for so long. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. So the book is The Lady from the Black Lagoon with the awesome cover from the guy who did the tattoo on your arm, right? Yes, Matt Buck. He did the illustration and he did the original tattoo. So it's funny to see it all come back around like that. So thank you for writing uh, a book I think the world needs right now. And also, I have to say, they were the best footnotes and acknowledgement section that I've read to date in a book. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Well, I, I wanted to write funny footnotes because, you know, when you're telling stories like this, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. And this is not a fun story. Sexism isn't fun to write about or read about. But if you can, you know, keep it a little bit light and make fun of some of these guys, it makes it a little bit easier to take. Well, thank you. And I hope you continue to write and I hope you continue to make monster movies. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Mally O'Mara, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to interview me. This was so much fun. Ten years ago, Army Private First Class Bo Bergdahl walked away from his post in Afghanistan and into the hands of the Taliban. It took five years before the U.S. was able to negotiate his release, and upon his return, Bergdahl was tried and discharged for his desertion. So what lessons can we learn from what happened? That's what journalists Matt Farwell and Michael Ames take on in their new book, American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. Our Paul Murnane has more. Michael Ames is on the line with us this morning, and I believe that you guys break some new ground here by actually talking to Bergdahl's family. And since his release and since his trial, I I don't think they've had a lot to say, if anything at all, right? That's right. We're the first reporters they've, they've spoken to. Um, and, and their story is, 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 is really amazing and one that I hope uh, readers will, will pick up the book to learn about. Yeah, he had a, a, a troubled, uh, well, some might be charitable and say interesting existence before he even got to the Army. Uh, do they point to that and say that um, this, is, this is a key thing to understanding Bo Bergdahl? Well, they're his parents, and they um, obviously love him, but they also recognize that he committed a cardinal sin in the military by walking away from his post. Um, And they told him that they expected him to, uh, you know, uh, take on whatever punishment was dealt to him. Um, They're they're good people. They uh, They were rallied around by the military at the time. They became very close with then General James Mattis, who went on, of course, to become Secretary of Defense. He visited them at their house. Uh, the military really gathered around them uh, to try to get their, their their son home. He was the longest held American POW since Vietnam. And yet, any celebration about his freedom was pretty short short lived. Um, that turned around very quickly, and uh, I think for them, it went it went badly in a hurry. His release. Oh, that's right. And 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 so my personal connection to this book is uh, and this story. Uh, both of us have a connection. Matt Farwell is a former Army infantryman. He fought in the same area of eastern Afghanistan where Bergdahl did. I was a newspaper reporter out in Idaho in Bergdahl's hometown. Uh, Bergdahl's father was the UPS man at the time. Uh, you know, uh, for my office at the time, his son was captured. So we saw this ordeal. Uh, 
affect the family and the town. It's a small, tight-knit community rallied around them. And then, boy, was that town put through just uh, a whipsaw after he was released. Uh, you know, people in the town were happy, and then they they had political media types walking through town with cameras and microphones, and people were getting death threats, and it was a real uh, ugly scene there for a, for a few weeks. He walked away, um, he said, for a noble reason. He, he told his, the investigators after his release that, um, you know, he had a job to do. I guess he was going to try and expose what he saw was the corruption around him, right? Yeah, and I mean, he admitted in the end with the investigators that it was a stupid idea and a stupid plan that he obviously never should have done. But at the time, he like he volunteered twice for the U.S. military, first time for the Coast Guard. He washed out of the Coast Guard basic training with uh, a major panic attack. Shouldn't even really have been allowed to enlist in the Army, but they lowered their standards and they gave him a waiver and they took him in. And that caught up to him. Those issues caught up to him there. And he started seeing things that he thought were there that are some of those things. Look, he was he was a smart guy and he saw some of the things that the army was doing and thought, is this really right? But then other things were delusional. You know, he thought his commanders were going to send them on a suicide mission. And there wasn't any real good proof for that. In his five years in captivity, um, he was really put through it uh, when he got out. Uh, there are details in the book about how he, when he was taken to the hospital, he wanted to sleep on the floor, I believe, in the bathroom, right? That's right. I mean, yeah. you know, for him, it maybe wasn't that unusual. Uh, he was a guy who slept on the floor it, to to train himself for hardship right. even before uh, he was a prisoner. So in some unique and interesting ways that readers will find out in this book, he the things that made him troubled and the things that that were his weaknesses in the army's social cohesion probably helped him survive this horrific ordeal as a prisoner uh, in total isolation. As you were writing, um, did you come to have maybe more sympathy for him or having worked in that in that town in that area in Idaho? Did you already have a certain feeling for him before the fact? Um, you know, I I I think I uh, absorbed what people in that town seemed to know throughout the five years and then really internalized after things turned bad, which was this was a very sweet-natured, um, naive guy who at 23 years old joined the Army, and it was kind of 23 going on, you know, 13 or 14 in many ways. He hadn't had, he'd been homeschooled, he hadn't had a lot of social interactions, and it was just incredible to people in his hometown that he had managed to find his way to the front lines and then only to be abducted and taken over the border to to Western Pakistan, which was at the time and maybe still is one of the most unreachable places on earth for the U.S. government. You do a great job in your book in talking about the whole history of Afghanistan and how the U.S. ended up... Um you know, coming to be there, and now our, our, the, the, the longest war we've ever fought. Um, when you look at Bo Bergdahl and the larger history, it does, however, give, give this whole case a certain context, um, and that's a big part, big part of this book. Oh, for sure. And I think, I think pe- people need to look no further than, than the news right now. And it's not front page news, but it probably should be, which is that the Trump administration is holding peace talks as we speak in Doha, Qatar, with the Taliban in a public way and the way 
in a way that the Obama administration never did and probably couldn't have gotten away with. And most incredible of this fact is that of that Taliban peace delegation uh, in, are the five guys who were traded for Bergdahl. Yeah, these were these were high uh, value prisoners. Were they all held at Guantanamo? Were they all being held there at the same time? They were all at Guantanamo, yeah. but you know, here they were described um, and by including then candidate Trump as bloodthirsty and vicious killers who are going to go out and try to kill us. Uh, and yet now the Trump administration is negotiating a peace deal with them. And, and and I think readers will be really interested to know more about the background, about who those five were and how they came to be prisoners in the first place. What's your understanding about Bo Bergdahl today? Um, is he still living with what happened to him has uh, has he moved on? Is he able to move on? And what's he up to right now, according to his family? Oh, I know he certainly wants to move on and put this behind him. But I think realistically, you know, this was a hugely traumatic event that will be with him forever. I can't speak for him um, uh, or even give any insight into where he is or what he's doing. I can tell you, and one thing that we discovered and readers will discover, is that before, uh, one of the last things he did when he was still in his court-martial was he was called out to a a survival school at an Air Force base in Spokane, Washington, to give lectures about survival as a hostage. And the, 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 the survival community in the military saw him as a really valuable asset and resource. And um, they were very happy to have his job there. So it was ironic, to say the least, to have uh, you know him on the media be described as a pariah and this vilified guy. And meanwhile, in the military, uh, the actual working military of survival instructors, they very much wanted him around to help teach other pilots and soldiers what to do if they found themselves in a similar situation. Bo and his family, do they understand that they're still... Um anger about it. I mean, you know, I was reading the book and a couple of times I kind of, I kind of put it down because, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I'd already kind of in my own mind uh, draw some conclusions. Oh, yeah, they know. I mean, how could they not? They were they were uh, put under FBI protection due to the number of death threats they received. Um, they were really the victims um, of, uh, of a just a tremendous media and political onslaught. And by the way, they were Republicans at the time, and they considered it a betrayal of their own political party. They, they said, you know, we're Republicans, and here Republicans were turning on us. Um, you know, and they just wanted people to know that, 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 they, uh, that their son volunteered for the military. Uh, he made a, a, a horrific mistake. He paid his dues. And um, I think there's a lot of background, and there's a lot about the family that people can learn in this book. Why did the family um, uh, cooperate with you? Was was there something that you had that maybe some other people? I can imagine, you know, they've been approached by other writers and other groups. Well, they knew how long Matt Farwell and I had both been working on this story. They appreciated the amount of dedication and the sources and the people we were speaking to. They knew we were taking it seriously and not as just a drive-by kind of soundbite deal. Um, they knew we weren't affiliated with anyone in Hollywood. We were totally independent. And look, I lived in their hometown in Idaho for nearly 10 years. And I think that helped me un- understand where they were coming from and gave some gave them some trust that I would paint them in a fair in a fair way. You didn't you didn't have a, a chance to sit down with Bo though. 
you know, we spoke to him briefly, but right. no, he was not available for uh, for long interviews. Was he? He he just didn't want to go. It wasn't something that he was. He was. He wanted to do. He's just. He's trying to move on. Is is, yeah. is what we're told. Yeah. One final question for you before you go, Michael. Is was there a moment in um, this whole process where there was? you know, kind of a revealing bit of information or a comment that, that kind of sticks with you all this all this time later? Yeah, you know, for me, the people I think were, who were victimized in addition, we've talked today, you and I, a lot about Bo and his family, but the soldiers who went looking for him uh, are heroes in their own right, and they are victims in their own right. And I, and I think one of the major revelations of this book that people will learn is, is from some of our best Pentagon and intelligence sources is truly an incredible fact. And that is that the U.S. military never ordered a single rescue mission to actually recover Bergdahl. There's a whole complicated background for why, but you'll have to yeah. uh, uh, pick up the book to understand yeah. how he was used as a cover story for other things. But right. there was never an actual rescue mission ordered. And the men who were told that they were doing so were not being told the truth by their own commanders. There's a lot of complexity and a lot to learn. Even all these years later, 10 years since Bo Bergdahl walked away in Afghanistan. The new book from Penguin Press is called American Cipher, Matt Farwell, and his partner Michael Ames in this effort. Michael's on the phone with us here at WCBS. It's a great book, a great conversation. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me today. If you're like me, you probably don't think about your bones unless you bang your knee getting up from a desk or wake up all achy and stiff. But author Brian Sweetek wants us to know bones are so much more, and he seeks to reveal the secrets our innermost selves can reveal in his new book, Skeleton Keys. I boned up on the subject with him. You've spent your career studying dinosaur bones. What drew you to write about human bones this time around? Uh, really looking at my own skeleton, or at least my, my own body and the bones that I know are within, and not really knowing very much about it. So I spent you know much of my career thinking about dinosaur skeletons and, you know, fossil mammal bones and, you know, all these other creatures. Um, but I realized I didn't really know very much about the human skeleton. So I tried to take some of the same questions that I often ask about, you know, things like, you know, T-Rex or, or Brontosaurus and apply that uh, to myself in terms of, you know, what is this bony element? What is bone tissue? What does it do? What does it mean for the movement and, and the growth of, of the animal? So trying to, um, you know, basically give myself a crash course on what our skeletons can tell us uh, about ourselves and who we think we are. Did you learn anything that really surprised you? Um, a lot of what really surprised me involved uh, the history of anthropology more than the bones themselves. So, for example, um, and, and this is stuff that, you know, I wish it were you know, otherwise, but the fact that anthropology in America uh, started off as a very racially focused science, that um, it didn't come out of just trying to collect bones and understand them, but this belief that there were basically five races of people and everybody could be shunted into one group or, or another and, and ranked. And, um, you know, this was the driving force for, you know, well over 100 years behind this the science. And it took a lot of work to undo this idea to come to the realization that race is a, a social construct and not a biological reality. And um, the resistance to changing that idea, uh, which I really had no idea about whatsoever. One of the things that you wrote that really stuck with me is that, you know, there's really no human skeleton that's capable of representing homo sapiens. And I think that plays into it a little bit. And as I was reading that, 
I, I was reading it on the subway and I and I stopped and I looked up and I looked around at everyone and just imagined us all as skeletons and it's it's just amazing when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. That this is the, the common structure that everybody has and that they all differ. That they're they're they all vary not only in you know small ways, <laughs> pardon me, in, in terms of you know the certain you know angles of, of the face or the length of our thigh bones or any of that stuff, but that you know even the number of bones in our skeleton, that the average number is about 206, but that's <laughs> going to differ from uh, person to person, that some people have extra bones, these little seed-like bones that grow in tendons called sesamoid bones that might be in a tendon on a, one of your fingers or underneath one of your toes, or some people have what are called wormian bones, these extra pieces of bone that didn't fuse entirely with the skull um, or the rest of the skull. So, you know, even the fact that you know, you look from one person to the next or one skeleton to the next, and each one has its own, you know, unique story to tell and is a little bit different, that there's no one standard skeleton. So let's go back to the history of anthropology. Do you think we've come a long way in dismissing all those myths, or do we still have a lot of work to do? I think we have a lot of work to do, and then I think the science itself has come a long way. Um, the response of anthropologists and archaeologists to uh, World War II and the Holocaust in particular made a huge difference in uh, changing sort of stubborn old views about uh, what was you know, wrong with, with the science. Um, the problem is that a lot of the sort of myths about race and about people that came out of the early days of anthropology, I still hear those views being espoused by, uh, you know, social conservative commentators. And, you know, we all have that one relative at Thanksgiving who's, you know, loves conspiracy theories and other things. Um, you know, I, I still hear these things in the popular realm. So even though anthropology as a science has moved on largely and is trying to do better and talk more uh, about these concepts and about, you know, for example, consent in terms of collecting skeletons. I think the sort of damage that was done uh, in the public realm uh, is, is still there and that the science has a responsibility to speak to these things, to speak to this history and try and untangle uh, some of the trauma that, that was done by these early ideas. And you briefly mentioned there uh, the collecting of skeletons. What is it about human bones that makes them so appealing to collectors? Um, I mean, it's probably similar to what's fascinated me about dinosaurs or other creatures. You know, bone is, it's beautiful. It's this, you know, evolutionary architecture and just aesthetically, it's very striking. And uh, skulls in particular hold so much personality that, you know, even you know, denuded of, of flesh, a, a human skull or a skull of really any creature, any, any vertebrate, you know, that's where a lot of its personality lives and um you know they're not only these you know markers of you know uh, these memento mori kind of objects but there's just something that's aesthetically appealing about them uh the question is that you know even though the the bone trade for human remains is largely legal um i think the ethical implications are still being untangled and and discussed so it's one of these things where you can buy a real human skeleton if you have enough cash but should you be doing that and sh where did that skeleton come from and who was this person and would they be okay with winding up in somebody's curio or an object on the mantelpiece and that's something that you know we're still uh discussing and trying to wade through even at the beginning of the 21st century what do you hope that readers take away from reading your book that bone is really a living and dynamic tissue, that it's not, you know, just a totem of death or the afterlife or something fit for, you know, poison labels or heavy metal album covers. Um, that bone is incredibly responsive and living 
tissue as much as your skin or your muscle is. And not only that, but it records so much of our lives, you know, down from, you know, the injuries that we suffer through, you know, in chemical signatures in our bones, what we eat and drink and where we live, and um, that they're really these vibrant time capsules that um, have so much power to tell us about um, our life and our connection. Quickly, before I let you go, I just have to say, one, I love the illustrations that are peppered throughout the book, and two, I love the chapter titles. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, there's so many bone puns and idioms that it was really just a matter of, you know, I wish I could have fit more in there. But that's one of the wonderful things, that bones are so woven into our culture. Uh, and that's what really drew me to, to this topic is, is, you know, drawing that out, our endless fascination with the skeletons that are inside of us. So the book is Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. Brian Sweetick, thank you so much for taking some time and talking to us about something I think we all probably take for granted and need to know a little bit more about. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that does it for me this week. Next time, we travel to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where a serial killer on a bike is cutting down hipsters with a machete. I think there are more than a few New Yorkers who can relate. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.